0: I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to episode 9 of Did You Know Pioneers? The podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. In this episode, we talk to manager, marketeer, and entrepreneur Matt Ross, one of the leading trailblazers in the UK music industry. Here's what Matt had to say when I asked him why he chose the music industry.
1: It found me, I found it... It was just a good marriage in that it fitted really my sensibilities. I like working in a creative environment. I've always been connected to the culture. When I say the culture, I guess the culture that was around me, and it was just a wonderfully exciting environment to be in. And uh, I've, I've always felt very fortunate from when I first encountered it, and it's grown since then. I'm, I'm gonna—I wouldn't lie and say it was a premeditated plan from years before i was on a sort of a pathway of law and took a took a detour to a much better option <laughs> let's put it that way
0: when we talk to everybody about being a guest on the pod and we've been blessed to have a lot of good friends that have taken partners we always ask them to send through their cv or some bullet points about their journey's day and I have to say, you win the prize for the most entertaining bullet points of day. <laughs> so let's talk about the young Matt Ross growing up and what that life was like for you, because it's a little bit different from some of our other guests.
1: I've always felt a little bit different in many ways. Uh, you know, growing up in that period of time, mixed race lineage. My mum black, my dad white, and my dad being a vicar. My mum became a social worker and a psychotherapist. She was a lesbian. Uh, she became a lesbian, you know, so I always always had a, a quite idiosyncratic background living in a vicarage. But the vicarage in Hagerston was adjacent to Holly Street, which was the big estate there, which was predominantly black and, uh, you know, was where I would hang out. And so I always felt like I had feet in different worlds and a, and a bit of an atypical profile,
0: but enjoyed that. How did a young mixed race boy in that environment navigate their way through that world? at that time? With difficulties and with challenges that
1: that I think anyone of of color in in that era will have encountered. And you find your own mechanisms, your own way to to meet those challenges. And, you know, I've always felt very fortunate because I was well equipped. I had a a nice supportive family. And I always always felt quite blessed by the the different facets to, to my life. It really enabled me to operate and be in different spaces, in a variety of different spaces. I would go and play Space Invaders around at Tekkins in the chip shop in, in Holly Street and all have all, all, all the mates there. And I would go to community to dance and to blues down in, in Mile End. But I, you know, went to school up in Stepney, which was a yeah, proper racist manner, really, in them days. Um, but it was an ex-grammar school. So, uh, you know, I was reasonably well-educated there. Even though, you know, I can't say I really excelled. You know, and then my dad being the vicar of the church, you know, I mean, when I first was here in London, I, I did spend a minute w- with a gown on and, and, and serving wafers and wine at <laughs> a, a Sunday service and, uh, and until I, I, I really decided that's not for me. And, uh, and my dad, thankfully, was never was never very oppressive with his faith. And it, it was really not for me.
0: Tell us about the music you're listening to as you're kind of down the chip shop and just and then hanging out at blues dances on the End Road. The first
1: sort of scene that I re- recollect sort of feeling like I was part of was the whole two-tone mod scene, you know, and the specials and selector, as in terms of getting involved in the garms as well as the music. And that for me was, and, st- and still does represent that synthesis that I really enjoy about London and about, about the UK and is the part of, that I really identify with, which is that that synthesis of black and white into a whole new uh, new sort of mix and a celebration of that, not a toleration a tolerance of that, but that yeah, that for me is is really an essence of London and what I really identify with. And then the other earliest memories were were reggae and dub because that was what I heard at blues parties at Bugsy's Blues and um, and a community centre round in Holly Street. Uh, you know, to contextualise that, I went to, to school in Stepney, uh, secondary school. And that, that's that time where you start going out to pubs or clubs or smoking and doing all those sorts of very adult things. And, you know, in Stepney, you know, if you went to those pubs around that, those days, you, you know, you would get beaten up. It was it was a very racist area as I, Docklands, you know, all East End. And so I would go out around near where I lived in Haggerston, you know, around Holly Street. And that's where my, where my friends would be. And when we first started going out, that would be down at Bugsy's Blues and, and uh, you know, Night Moves and Oasis at, um, uh, in Dalston Soul Clubs, you know, Soul and Reggae, you know, where I'd be in clubs with hundreds of people and there would be three white people in the whole place. So that was where I've, I first started exploring club life. That 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 mix of club and socialising. It was in those environments, and then house parties, of course. You know that were in generally in council flats, and generally about two, three in the morning. The, the curry goat and rice would <laughs> come out, on the paper plate that you're that you're trying to hold yeah. without spilling it on whatever garments course, you're wearing. Of course, in course. In, in a in a corridor that's about that thick. <laughs> And, you know, when they were hot and sweaty and very intimate and, um, you know, grinding with with, with (laughs) yellow and just all of that stuff that that sort of feels almost quite alien now.
0: One of the things you said earlier was that you didn't excel at school. And if I may say so, I think you did yourself a disservice because you ended up going to one of London's best universities and studying law.
1: When I came to go to, to apply to university, which was a few years after... I should' have gone. my brother was much more diligent, went straight upper six, straight into university, et cetera, et cetera. I spent a few years learning how to play brag and pool and and messing around and 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 failing academically actually. you know, actually you brought this other chapter back to me. you know, I spent a few years in what was sitting East London College at the time, down in Hoxton. It's now luxury apartments, and you know, and I literally sat in a common room and played three card brag and pool and didn't go to the lectures and failed and then re-enrolled and did that again in the following year. And I just thought, this is great, until I went back one year and, and I got the hand when I tried to re-enroll. And oh, yeah. I said, no, and, I, and then that, and it was the best thing I could have happened because it then, you know, it jolted me into like, what are you doing? You know, um, and my mum got me in touch with a, a guy called Max, who was the only black head of department in Ilia as it was at the time, in a London Education Authority. And he was the head of the department at Kingsway Princeton College. And it was all late because I was enrolling and then, you know, then couldn't enrol. And he, she got me in to see him and I went in to see him and he sort of said, look, you know, I'll, I'll get you in, but don't come if you're not serious. And I did, and I went there and I enrolled and I did did one year A levels and I just went there, didn't go into the common room once, just went in for my lectures, ended up being much more focused. I then got good grades and 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 realized I could get into the university I wanted to get into, which was SOAS. And yeah, and it just it, it was just one of those junctures where where circumstances just jolted you into a bit more out out of a out of a you know a sort of path. That I was on.
0: Once you finish at SOAS, law degree in the pocket, what happens then because suddenly you take a major left turn? Again, it was sort of fortuitous. I, I, had, a, I had a friend
1: who was at Sony, his name was Phil Seidel. And, you know, we, he was part of a friendship network. He was in artist relations and was just getting promoted to TV promotions at Columbia. And so on, So that which is how I, I knew that the, the job was going and how I got had some sense of, of, of what the industry was, because the industry was, you know, I was immersed in music in a way, but that's nothing to do with the music industry per se. You know, and I, you know I didn't really have a sense other than I knew someone who was in it. Ah, oh, right, There's these big companies who do these interesting stuff. And that's what you're listening to. And um, yeah, so I, I, I so I that was how I knew that the job was going. And I thought that could be the best job in the world to start, which it sort of was. And then went in for this interview, and I remember meeting my my first boss, Jackie Hyde, who is still at Sony now. She's an absolute stalwart of the business. And walked in and just sort of, yeah, snapped into it in the morning and had a, had a really good interview with her. We had a great rapport. Um, she's a wonderful woman, really straightforward, really personable. And we got on immediately and I thought it was all great but then it it you know the 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 position the the chairman at the time Paul Russell wasn't signing off on on filling the position and so it 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 hung over and you know that feeling where you, you 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 feel you've got something over the line and then it doesn't and it's hanging and you just feel like oh I knew that was too good to be true oh it's oh Oh, depressed, and uh, you know, and so that I then I then went and uh, you know I turned a living. I was I was I was dispatch riding. I I then started working in a bar behind a bar in 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 Berkeley Square called Circa. I'll speak candidly. I hated it. It was it was it was full of yuppies, and I was as a black man behind the bar serving drinks. It just didn't feel good. However, that was also you know the other aspect of it is I met some really good mates. It was like five or six of us. We'd have a proper laugh. One of my mates, Luke Neville, had just, uh, was an immigrant from Australia who we met there. He then went on to become a DJ and then a big executive and now still runs a very significant company called Listen Up. And uh, we've been best friends for, for, for decades now. and we, we met there pulling drinks. Um, and I then... Yeah, I mean that was just just keeping the rent paid. Uh, so I, I had the opportunity. I, I started an LLM, which is a, a master's in law, as much because I, I needed to fill it with something more interesting or more more meaningful than than, than serving cocktails. And but I really wasn't motivated. It was pretty down. There was an incident that that is on my still seared into my memory. That uh, there was a South African student there called Zabantu who. Was younger cohort because she was an undergrad. I was in, doing that postgrad, and uh, you know, I bumped into her one time when I was coming out of out of uni, and I was I was a bit low. She's like, "How are you?" you know, I'm feeling a bit rubbish, really. And then I told her about all this, and and I and I used that phrase that I used. I said, "You know, I, thought, I knew it was too good to happen." And she just said to me, really, in a in a really way that had impact. She just said, "She put a hand on me. She said, no, don't ever say that. It's not nothing's too good to happen to you. It's going to happen to someone. Why do you think and?" Somehow it just pierced through the sort of fog, and I thought, yeah, actually, and it, and it really had impact on me. And and I just from that, I remember that as a really pivotal moment. And I just my mood turned. And I just thought, you know what? I started looking at the glass half full. And then literally about three or four days after that, I got a phone call, and and Paul Russell signed off on the job, and Jackie wanted me for the job, and I went in um, to do an artist relations, and that was the start of my story with 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 Sony and with with the music industry um yeah it was it's an amazing first job
0: clearly you transitioned pretty quickly out of artist relations because you and I have known each other for a long time when we've worked together on things I mean you know kindly put money in my pocket Matt when I was a, <laughs> an independent <laughs> promo doing club promo back in the day when you were a marketing manager over at Sony Columbia at so, time how was that for you? I mean, how did you fall into How did you transition into that role? After two years
1: of doing artist relations, as great as it is, it, you know, uh, after two years, you've sort of done it. You've done at the time, you've done all the, you've done all the as- aspects of it and it becomes, you know, not quite Groundhog Day, but it, it you know, it, it, it's a good time to then move on. And, you know, I, I, had the opportunity of then going to the Columbia label. There was Columbia Epic and a, a, a S2 at the time. I wanted to go to Columbia because I was a big Public Enemy fan. And and at the time, Def Jam were, were at Columbia. I got there about, I think, about five seconds after I got there, the label, the deal went to, to Universal. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah,
0: that, I, I think they heard that I you were like, coming, mate. I think that's
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I, you know, I, I got there a really, uh, you know, a really brilliant time. There was a great... Vein of talent coming through Columbia at that time, and you know, like anything, you're you're only as as good as the materials you have to work with, and and marketing can be creative, but at the end of the day, if you if you start with a great record and an inspired artist, then it, it it's an infinitely easier job. The first most memorable project for me was was the Onyx that, that I had as a junior product manager was the Onyx album, Back the Fuck Up and, you know, throw your guns and slam. And I just remember being so excited by that. We had just such a rich vein of, of, of black music coming out of the U.S. primarily. Um, you know, we had the, the Rough House label, we gave us Fugees and Cypress Hill, and Chris Schwartz was 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 a lot of fun. And, um, you know, Destiny's Child from Record One. I remember I remember them coming over, you know, I think they were about 15, 16. And you know they were always such the hardest working band I you know had the privilege to work with. When I stepped into Sony in '92, there were there were two other executives of color in the whole company. One was a legendary A&R guy called Lincoln Elias, and, and Dej Mahoney. You know, peerless lawyer, um, head of business affairs at that in '92.
0: Sony was always had great music, but for me, it, it had great people. It offered opportunities to people of colour that I'd never seen in, in any other label. And there wasn't a label where there were three major executives able to hold court, have responsibility, like Lincoln Elias, Dej Mahoney, and yourself. Within that triumvirate, How was what was that kind of power dynamic and how did you guys support each other during your time Together, and what if any challenges did you find as black men in in that situation? It's really interesting to hear you talk about it from the outside in such a positive
1: way, and that there were three significant execs of color and uh, doing stuff. I always, when I always reflect on it, it you know, it was it, the starting point was 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 in some ways opposite to that. It was always disappointing for me that there were only, you know, two other black executives uh, in the company and it always felt to me as I reflect on it like the music industry certainly in majors was a white boys industry and that because the the entry points were all really about network right, which is again is different now you know unless you were in those networks they, they become self-replicating and so I when, I when I came in I always had an agenda that like cool it's really fortunate that I'm in here but I always had an agenda I don't you know i want to try and affect some positive change in a structural way as well as well as have some personal success and do some stuff i wanted it to be different and to try and create a gateway and a conduit for others to come in after and the street team that, that we established at, at columbia was really all about that we, we it, that was a always a major part of it it was always a two-way uh, symbiotic process you know we we created that with, with Shabs, who was running Media Village at the time, an external promotional organisation. It was multifaceted. The, the street team was always wrapped up in trying to create a conduit for, for young black talent to interface with the business in, 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 its, in its all its uh, levels as, as a way to show themselves and, and to gain experience and to come in. It was a, res, a creative response to the sort of structural and institutional Racism—that's it what it is—or or, or unconscious bias against black music that, that existed throughout the gatekeepers in the industry, whether that's media, whether that's retail, or whether that's corporate in terms of allocating budgets and such. And you know, we struggled with with black music that we knew was of quality then because there were preconceptions. Uh, whether that's at retail, where you know if you want to get a number one single, you had to get end racking at Woolworths or you had to get it at HMV, and and you know they chose who they took the money from for that rather than anything else, and you know they would look at a, a, a Fuji's release or a Cypress Hill release and and think, well, that's of limited um, relevance outside of London, and so we're not going to do that, and you know, and similarly with media, and so. Our, our creative response was that was to say, cool, all right, well, let's we, let's work with the with the people and the and that the, we know are receptive to our music. Let's we know we're getting played in clubs. We know we're getting played on pirate radio. Let's focus on 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 those things. We we got the street team was comprised of. The, all the people running the clubs and the park radios in the major conurbations up and down the country. We wanted the people who were making things move on a street level in their local communities. And we wanted to access them to promote our, our, our repertoire and our product. But we also wanted to give them a bring in so, they, so people that were immersed in the culture and that were moving the culture forward would be able to come in and have access to the industry um, and, and understand its machinations and, and have have roots in. You know, so we, we, you know, Shabs pulled together um, these, these players from up in, across the country. We pulled them down into, into Sony and we had meetings in the big Sony meeting, you know, conference room and, and such. And when artists came in and we had promotion time, we would allocate time specifically to, to street team promotion and alongside that we we pioneered within within database marketing we right. you know we we said right let's go to the consumers that we know let's get their addresses it was addresses at the time <laughs> there's no emails yeah, and yeah, well, that yeah. Shit. Yeah. you know and, yeah. yeah we did and we did a little a5 fanzine called freebase which was free and it was database and you know and that gave us an opportunity to get the street team People acting as journalists, they created those articles, and so then when Beyonce and 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 Destiny's Child came in, we'd you'd be doing regional radio here, they'd be doing press here, and then we'd have carved some time out for them to do stuff with the street team, and the, and and those reps would be doing the interviews, and so learning journalism, learning all of those uh, all of those skills, and producing that content, and so we were trying to just create our own little ecosystem that we knew was receptive, that we knew were vested in the culture and that we could work with alongside still trying to knock on Radio 1's door.
0: I suppose what I was trying to say was that being able to see Lincoln, days yourself, gave a lot of people who were sitting outside Sony, maybe working at other record companies, maybe as independents, but they could look at you guys and, there was, and they could see that there was actually a real possibility that those roles in other companies may actually be accessible. Because up until that point, that hadn't been the case. One of the things you may remember, Matt, was that there were there was always a black employee within record companies, but they were generally the club promotion guy. And that was the role that the black employee had. So to be able to see you guys in positions of power with a pathway that may actually get to the next place was actually really empowering for a lot of people on the outside looking in. But who were some of the other people that were crucial and influential in your formative years as you, as you kind of were making your way in the business through artist relations
1: and then into marketing? Jed Doherty is one that springs to mind, Paul Berger. I mean, Jed Jed came in, was coming in. Jed's a, an executive um who managed Paul Young back in the day. He was then executive at Epic in, in, in America. And he was then coming in to be managed director at Columbia. I was actually on my way out the door. I was going to another another label. And Jed, Jed gave me a call and, and said, look, no, stay put, let's have a chat. He, you know, we, we had a talk about, my aspirations personally and and within that 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 context and you know he was the one that 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 gave me the title of of head of black music that was what i asked for and uh, and created there it wasn't uh it wasn't a title that existed before at sony and it was was really about empowering that agenda to, to to really be focused and take a structural look at how we can maximize what we're doing with black music and not just about selling repertoire, but, but all of it, but, but internally within our structures and uh, giving that focus and just having an appreciation of that as a, as a skill set. You know, Jed Doherty was, has always been, you know, a big help and a, and a great facilitator, someone who really, in a sincere way, understood um, the benefit for the company of supporting um, all the different facets of the repertoire that they had. And equipping executives and empowering executives within within the structure to to do to do a job as well as they could, um, and to just be pushing back creatively within the context, the media, and the market context that that, that we had there, um, and addressing the issues with a sort of boldness, and a, uh, that I think we you know we benefited from and were able to do things. You know, Paul Berger was always a big supporter. You know, and then there were always, always inspirational people at other labels. Mervin, you know, had a, we had a similar trajectory. Mervin was over at Ariston doing all the LaFace the and the Bad Boy stuff. You know, and uh, you know, we and we were we were in different parts of the industry at different times, and there was like, you know, it's like Manu and, and and Arsenal <laughs> in our glory days, and you know, it, it's it's a wonderful, healthy competition that, that grew the market, and I think you know, learned and inspired each other to to to, to move on.
0: You had a period where you did A&R. You then became VP of marketing over at Sony Music Europe. And then you said that Jed rescued you, and that was your BMG period. Do you consider that to be the happiest time you spent working for a major label?
1: Jed had moved to um, head up BMG at that time and, uh, and, and offered me a gig over there. As marketing director, he then restructured the company to, to be um, aligned along genre divisions. Richard was, Richard was rock and, and Louise was pop and I was urban. You know, that, that was a, a, a really great period. Again, you know, I, I worked with Alicia Keys. I did Outkast, um, Speaker Box of Love, below that record, then um, on, on, uh, during that time. And then I did Usher's Confessions. During the, so we a great repertoire. I mean, Mervyn had already uh, broken Usher. He was already a global superstar. But I like to think we took it to different heights then, but I'm sure Mervyn will come back. Yeah, I, I, I no, so wish had...
0: Mervyn was here right now because I, I know he would have something to say about that.
1: Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, I'm just prodding him. And, um, you know, so, yeah, and uh, had, a, had a, um, a great period there. Really enjoyed that. You know, I've always enjoyed working with Jed. He's always been a very empowering boss and you know just you're as good as a repertoire that you have to work with and you know we we did some amazing things with the usher record i remember we had i think number one single and album on both sides the atlantic you know which we crowed about on the posters i think only the beatles had done it before at the same time but it's, it's yeah we we had great repertoire and you know andre from outcast i mean absolute gent and a pleasure to work with i mean super super inspiring and humble uh, artist yeah you yeah. know really yeah we, I've got very fond memories of that time um really working with some special people and in, in the in the label as well as the artists
0: sadly you got made redundant but that's that then labeled you to start another amazing chapter in your life and honestly Jed I can't you know I shouldn't maybe shouldn't say this but I thank you for making him redundant because <laughs> you, you gave me a great week so we should talk about That next chapter of your life, which was very, very special, I know it was. um, It meant a lot to you and helped you kind of just realign and refocus. I think
1: the one, you know, the one thing you always guaranteed working in any major is that someday you'll get you'll get a cardboard box and a check, and hopefully the hopefully they'll both be big. (laughs) But um, you know, make you know, it's it's a very it was a chastening episode in my life to be made redundant, and and, um, and you know challenges your sense of of who you are. And again, lots of lessons in, in that for me, those humbling experiences are great because they challenge you to, to, to reinvent that next step and to dig deep. I was, you know, I spent like 13 years here being Matt from Sony or, you know, people, a lot, most people who knew me didn't know my surname, Matt from Sony (laughs) or, you know, and and then to then think like, okay, where do I go now? Um, Was, was a really, a a real challenge at the time. But as I look back, I really, you know creative creative and important challenge for me i you know had a bit of an epiphany when we were in trinidad my my lineage on my mother's side is trinidadian and uh, my kids were young enough to to move me and and my wife was was kind enough to support me and let's do that and we we decided to 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 move there and you know i guess my thought process but i felt i had something to to contribute i i could you know, try and find another another spot in in London, or you know. But I thought, you know what? Actually, I'd really like to get to Notre Dame. I had known it and felt connected since I was a child, but never really been back. You know, my dad was a vicar; we never had money to do international travel, really. You know, and it 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 just felt like like a bunch of things aligning. Didn't have a job to go to, so it was it was it was definitely. Um, uh, and make it up as you go along, move, but it, it worked out really well. Yeah, you know, I started working for McCann Erickson there. At the time, I, I was structured a nice four-day week, so I had the Fridays at the beach, which is amazing. And, and they, you know, they, it, it was just fortuitous. They wanted to do a bunch of music stuff. They, their, 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 their main client was uh, with the National Telco, TSTT. It was just liberalising uh, the mobile space. Um, for uh, from being a monopoly to to sharing it with with cable and wireless, and they were rebranding their mobile offering, wanted to do a bunch of music stuff. I was like, I'm your guy, and so we we're going to do some large scale live events. Got them Kanye West the first year, we did Rihanna and John Legend the second year, and I lived there for two years and developed a, a live business, which is it was a simple arbitrage. I was a middle buyer, I could I could buy because I had relationships and 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 some standing. And initially for for the the major telco there, but more latterly on a, on an annual festival that was that was run in Tobago, and had the privilege of of working out there while I was there, but also then when we came back to London, for for the best part of the next decade, um, which which took me out there each year. And was was a wonderful, wonderfully flexible uh, cycle of work that I could then do from London. Allowed me to do other things while I was in London, some management stuff and some other things, and be out there and and reconnecting on a regular basis with with Trinidad and in a in a way that was really meaningful. I, I, you know to be involved in um, bringing some of the best global talent. To not just the region, but to the, to, to, to Trinidad, um, you know, is something I'll, I really enjoyed, and I, and to this day I remain really proud of. You know, we over that decade we did probably about fifty artists, from from Beyonce to to Kanye, Rihanna, and John that I mentioned, Miguel, J Cole. Um, Emily came out there, as, as you've already mentioned. We had, you know. Janelle Monet was on that bill we, as
0: well. Earth, Janelle, the yeah. Fire, Laura uh, Hill. I'm reading them off Chaka Khan, Wycliffe, Grace Jones. I mean, it's a, an incredible feat. And um, I've got to say, if anybody has the opportunity to go, go because it's a wonderful, wonderful festival set in a a, a beautiful part of the world. And it's, um, yeah, it's it's a feast of music and it's just a joy. I was really interested to hear... Your view on being almost a protector of the culture, and how important it was for you to be a door opener for those that came th- that were coming through behind you when you were at, when you were at Sony, and clearly at your time at BMG. Do you see yourself as a pioneer in that respect, in trying to ensure the generation of that time were afforded opportunity?
1: It's difficult to sort of use such grandiose language about yourself. I was really fortunate. I I fell into some good situations, and I feel that I that I applied myself and and made the best of them and uh, and created some value. Had some brilliant times. I I was always concerned with that. Was always part of my agenda. You know, my my family environment, my familial environment was always politically concerned, and. I was always growing up at the time I did with the NF and all of that. You know, I was always very aware of being a black person. I was identified as that. And, and so I, I carried that with me and still do to this day. And so when you step into a very white corporate environment, you bring that with you. And, you know, I've got some positive stories and some negative stories about that. I was part of um, a cohort of executives at that time. Who I think all did contributed to to those channels being opened up, and it's with, you know, I look at, at what's going on now with with you know with 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 great satisfaction and 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 you know to see those changes right now. It, it, interestingly, going being away and working in the Caribbean for a decade, and then I remember really when I came back, even know, I wasn't gone for a decade. I remember. Th- feeling a tangible shift. I can't remember. I was at a, I was at backstage at a festival. I think it was British summertime. And I think Kendrick was on there or some other people uh, were on there. And I, I, I'd been away and I hadn't been around all of that for a while. And I remember just wandering around the backstage, the hospitality, which is massive. It's pretty large. And, you know, with a trained eye and any experience, you know at a glance who's working and just who's ligging. And I remember coming back and seeing so many young faces of colour and that I could see at a glance were working and not just, not just hanging around. And it was, it was a wonderful feeling because it felt really tangible, the change. What's gratifying is that it seems there's a, there's a shift in the recognition of the, the commercial value and benefits that, that those experiences bring into an organisation if they're nurtured and supported appropriately and um, particularly when the product itself is deeply cultural and so much of that sits within within the the orbit of the black community and yeah and so we i'm 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 super enthused and excited by what i see going on i mean i, I don't see myself as i'm not in no longer in the music in the industry per se i'm sort of, i think of myself as adjacent to it in the in the venture i'm in now but still uh, have connections and, and activity in there. And so you see what's going on. And And there's a lot to be really optimistic about and to and to applaud and to be excited about.
0: It was really interesting to hear you say there were the good times and there were the negative elements when you first started about being a man of colour. Can we get an example of one of each of those things that were enthused, supported, and where you found that you were really up against it?
1: The negative ones, I guess, are probably more trivial.
0: But are they? They're the more trivial, as in the
1: anecdotal. I wrote a, a piece for, um, to commemorate a, a dear friend, Richard Antwi. I, I contributed to a piece. Dark has contributed to, actually, I think, as well, to my recollection. Uh, there the was in, in MBW, Music Business Worldwide, on, on Richard um, a couple of years ago. And one of the anecdotes there, which um, I'm recounting, that Rich was sort of involved with. At the time, we, we had loads of really successful black repertoire, Coming through, live music was always a real bastion of 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 no colour, no no. You know, I remember thinking Ray Cosbert was always like the only black man in in live music. Rich and I had 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 a little uh, kernel of an idea to say, look, you know, we've got loads of this really good repertoire, and if they come and see face of people of colour in in the agents where. On this side of the Atlantic, that that will work to secure them and and be good. And the idea was, Rich was an undergraduate at Oxford at the time. Let's get him in at one of these agencies. Be be that that interface, you know, and then build build that himself up in uh, and those contacts up in that way, and 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 move on from there. We we then suggested this to to one of the agents here, and and it was it was met with a sort of pretty flat rejection, and like, well, you know, I don't really like working with black artists and uh, managers that they're, they're sort of short term and they're on the short money and uh, a lot of disparaging stuff. I was, the wind was taken out of my sails with a woof, whoosh, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and and Richard's response was typical, Richard, you know, he said, let's just start our own agency, which was, which was super, you know, inspiring and and just rich. There was plenty of really supportive initiatives and individuals from Jed to Paul Berger to, you know, stuff that we were able to do that I think was meaningful at the time and that are the things I remember much more um coherently. I'm going to take the liberty of using that as a segue to talk about about Richard.
0: No please, because it's important.
1: Richard was a was a, you know, a supreme the inspiring individual, lawyer, manager, and an entrepreneur, always super ahead of the curve. He passed really suddenly in, in 2016. When Richard passed, you know, the the outpouring of, of goodwill to Rich was something I'd never witnessed before. You know, massive goodwill um, to Rich, which was a testament to, to to the esteem in which he was held by all and, all and sundry. And, and, you know, he earned that. Um, there's plenty of stories. You know, we've, we've channeled that goodwill into into a scholarship with the University of Westminster. We're three years in really supporting people of colour that have that hunger and and are in need and to, to get that postgrad education to go into and, and a conduit into the industry of which the, the course at the University of Westminster, there's no better course to do that. Scholars that have come through are all very well placed right now. And we've got some really exciting things happening with that. And that is, you know, it's a testament to the to the, the positive energy that there is out there and the, and, and the recognition that there is now about the, the benefit for industries, for the industry as a whole and for companies specifically. In tapping into that talent, supporting that talent in a in a meaningful way, and so there are there are lots of positive stories, many more so now than than then. Um, but it's 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 continued to move in in a positive direction, in, in in my own opinion.
0: Is there a moment in your career where you look back on with great fondness, maybe a standout day, night, award ceremony?
1: One of the proudest moments for me, I've got to say, was. Was Beyonce coming on stage at, at, at the Queen's Park of Savannah in Port of Spain, Trinidad, and I, you know, I was instrumental in making that happen in a number of ways, and it had a different resonance because it was like bringing something I'd been involved with Beyonce from the start of her career, from No 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 and um, the start of her international career at least, and it felt very proud to be instrumental in. In bringing her at the peak of her powers to to my motherland, you know, to Trinidad, and um, that that's something you know, and and you you inevitably share that with with a bunch of people there, a bunch of special people were there as well, uh, including my my kids, and in, in uh, and in many ways that was a a moment where I think. It demystified to my kids a little bit about what I did. Dad always did this sort of <laughs> slightly, yeah, slightly nebulous thing, you know, and we can't really describe what it is. But you know, we we had a, we had a dinner. I remember we 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 had a little dinner with with Beyonce, me and the, my, my wife Lola and, and Coco and Angel, my kids, and uh, and just Beyonce and Ty. were in a, in a in a um a restaurant there, and you know, Coco came with her in the car, and it, it was like. She she just lost it. She was like speechless, which which is is not usually a thing for my daughter and uh, and it, you know and and that was a really special moment. You know the, the Trinidad connection reconnecting with Beyonce after that time just bring you know and 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 also that coming after some of those challenging times that were precipitated by that redundancy that I referred to and you know so it felt like the culmination of of a regroup and of a reset and and it felt like a really. Quite a pivotal moment that, that, that yeah, that I was really proud of and was a big thing.
0: There's nothing better than being the cool dad, right? And you, 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 it doesn't <laughs> yeah. get any cooler than introducing your, your kids to Beyonce. I mean, that's the, I mean, I've got a few yeah. moments, but I think you just, you know, you just killed me with those.
1: <laughs> it's definitely a transient title because they don't always feel that way, but yeah.
0: <laughs> and... Finally, when you look back at where you started, your aims and ambitions, clearly your real desire to kind of, not just kind of have a successful career, but also effect change and be one of those guys that offered opportunity and showed the way. How successful do you think you've been? How successful do you think the industry has been in embracing change and really being proactive and real about its desire to ensure there's true diversity and inclusion in in its everyday business?
1: My subjective opinion is that it's, it's... It's better now than it was in terms of how effective and sin- how sincere the industry is in terms of that change and embracing that change and how effective they are in, in putting those measures in. On a personal level, as I said, I've always walked with that agenda from, from morning, because from, that was part of me, into any environment I went into, whether it was my school or, or beyond that, it, it's, it's inalienable. And I continue to do that in, in, in my immediate orbit, and uh, as much as I can, the industry as a, as a wider thing, you know, it feels like certainly the last year was a tipping point in many ways. You know, the seismic change, the murder of George Floyd created a tipping point that, that has, has led to some seismic change. The visibility that white, the white majority community have that, that came from that. Why that didn't exist before is another question, but it certainly created a tipping point where there was a, a, a shift, tangible and significant shift in in, in the white majority the community's recognition of their complicity in that, how they benefit from that, the depth and uh, longevity of that, and we're still in that moment. We're still in the moment of the reverberations of that of that time. And as painful as it is, it's really gratifying to see this, the the shift that's that's precipitated by that. I think it's far bigger than any individual, and those individuals come and go. However big or important or however much their longevity in the business, they come and go. And these the industry and these institutions and structures within it have uh, a, a, an autonomy from those individuals, and they move. They're like cruise ships they don't they're not like speedboats. they take a long time to turn around and orientate in a different direction but equally once they're moving in that direction they take a long they take a lot to turn off that course and so I think there's been a shift in a very positive direction in ways that I only dreamed of back in the 90s and through the noughties and so I, th- I feel that th- there's sincerity in that I feel that there's some seriousness in that but I also feel that, that we would all be a disservice to, to, to those issues and to the industry as a whole were we to get complacent about that and think, yeah, it's all done. We've done a few things, made us feel good. Let's just go and, you know, have a drink. No, it, it's an ongoing process that the more we put into that and the more we evolve that, the more value it will deliver to those individuals, but also to the business as a whole, and, and and I think that's part of the kernel. It's not just about sort of you know esoteric notions of social justice. It's about business. It's about creating value within within a, a, a market sector, and you know there's 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 a multitude of different studies that. That articulate and expand on why how diversity works in in, in in many different ways to increase efficiency, to increase inclusion, to to access talent and is just efficient. Overall, I'm 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 really inspired by what's going on. But that's not to, to say that we can all start slapping each other's backs and and thinking like we've reached any endpoint. It's just a recognition of how much there is to go how much there is to be gained by moving in that direction but certainly things are happening now that i that were pipe dreams for me back in the day and it's wonderful to see it all
0: happening and honestly matt i can't think of a better place to end thank you for being so generous with your time with sharing your stories with providing inspiration and ambition and all the other great work that you've done and that you continue to do. It's been a pleasure, my friend. Thank you for joining us on Did You Know?
1: Thank you very much. Great to see you. Thank you.
0: I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was Did You Know Pioneers, a downstream production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Matt for sharing his story. Our thanks as ever to Danny D, partner and true pioneer. Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, and Ruby on the socials, and Vega Brothers for our theme music. Thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW, and to Evie, Ren, and David, and the entire team at WX. You'll soon be able to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know Pioneers podcast. Details coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode where we talk with industry executive and marketing consultant Mervin Lin about his career in the music business to date. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time.